This is Insight, investigative reporting from Rocky Mountain PBS. I'm Lee Patterson. This is a story about something horrific that happened in Denver four years ago. Do you remember why you went to go get the gun? A man killed his wife and blamed it on marijuana. This is a feeling I've never felt before. I went, wait a minute, something's wrong. I was completely freaked out immediately. It left Coloradans wondering, what can go wrong if you eat a marijuana edible? They're seeing things, they're hearing things, they're actually very, very afraid, and they're very, very nervous and paranoid. In this podcast, we'll hear the killer's side of the story from prison for the first time in an exclusive interview with Rocky Mountain PBS. We'll explore what we've learned about marijuana edibles since then and how Colorado's regulations have evolved. Colorado was the first mover on this issue. As a result, I think other states can benefit from our experiences. Some of what you'll hear in this podcast is disturbing and might not be appropriate for small kids. So, Lori Jane, just start by telling me what happened here in Colorado back in January of 2014. There's a big news story. Colorado's opened recreational marijuana stores. For Colorado's new retail pot market, today lines are long and sales brisk. January 1st, 2014, people could go and buy marijuana legally in Colorado. Smokable, drinkable, and from this bakery, edible. The whole world was looking at this. It was an important news story, and I was a reporter, and I covered this. I did tons of stories on marijuana. It sort of became my beat. Everybody was watching what was going to go right, what was going wrong. How was this even going to work? Lori Jane Gleha is an investigative reporter with Rocky Mountain PBS. Not long after dispensaries opened their doors. A couple really serious things happened and it got people's attention. There was a man, Richard Kirk, who bought an edible and then went home and shot his wife in the head. This was horrific just on, on its face. But what complicated things was this happened right after recreational marijuana was legalized. So there were lots of questions about, ooh, are, are these safe? Um, and I really wanted to know what was going on. What happened to this guy? Was it something that in that edible that made him do this? Or was this a murder that was going to happen anyway? From the beginning, his defense was that the edible made him do it. And I wanted to know, was that actually possible? Could his story be true? I wanted to go ask the experts. I wanted to find out what research had been done. On top of that, Colorado has come a long way. It has been four years. So what has Colorado done to address this, to prevent incidents like this from happening? And what can other states learn from Colorado? It's a blazing hot day. Lori Jane and I have been driving for a couple of hours south of Denver and then east. A lot of barbed wire. Yep, it's definitely the prison. And we finally get to the Bent County Correctional Facility. We walk up to the front gate. Yes, we're here from Rocky Mountain PBS for an interview with um, inmate Richard Kirk. Okay, so we're meeting Richard Kirk. Okay, go ahead and come in. I'm sorry. Richard Kirk, the Denver man accused of killing his wife while high on pot. It was a crime that stunned our community, and today the man accused... 50-year-old Richard Kirk will be sentenced April 7th for killing his wife, Christine, as Christine Kirk. She was 44 years old. A working mom, mother of three... Friends said she lived for her kids. As for her husband, Richard Kirk... Uh, Now he's serving several decades in prison. 
All right, so we walk down a long hallway. It's a cinder block hallway. There are fluorescent lights. And we go into um, a, a visiting room. And Richard Kirk is sitting there all by himself. And I had seen his picture, you know, in the mugshot where he looked strong and intimidating and tough. And and I see this guy there, and he didn't look any of those things. He had this goatee that was growing down off his chin. He looked a lot thinner, smaller than his picture. And at first, I, I didn't realize it was him. And then when I then I realized, I mean, it was very quickly I realized, but I was like, oh, that's that's Richard Kirk. He was just a regular guy. Just a regular guy. But what happened back in 2014 was anything but regular. So let's start by going back to that point in time, back to 2014. Richard Kirk had eaten a marijuana edible, and things had spiraled out of control. Do you remember why you went to go get the gun? I remember sitting on the couch, and Chris was in the living room, talking on the phone over away from us. Andrew had come in there. Andrew, his youngest son. For some reason, I was I was asking him about numbers. I, I think I was trying to get back to who I am. I think that I was trying to remember stuff of who I was before I was feeling the way that I was feeling. I was terrified. Finally, I said, Andrew, what is our address? What is our address? And he said, Daddy, I don't, I can't remember. <laughs> Dad, why are you asking me? <laughs> I said, Andrew, just tell me our address. And he, and he finally got his composure. He said, Dad, it's 2112, 2112. And something, when he said that number, Something in me just, I just lost myself. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what the threat was. I didn't know if I was the threat. I didn't know. Fast forward to the day we drive down to interview Richard Kirk at the prison. He's now been locked up for years. He's repeatedly declined interviews from reporters from the jail cell, Um, from where he is in prison. And finally, I wrote him a letter. He agreed to meet me. One of the first things Richard Kirk does is he opens up um, a composition notebook, some sort of notebook, and takes out family photos. Show me your favorite one. Okay. I have two favorites. Is that okay? Yeah. Why is this one one of your favorites? It's a photo of my wife and me. We're standing on a bridge, and there's a creek or a river running underneath it. It, it shows the trees and the beauty of nature, the sky, the b- beautiful blue sky. And You both have big smiles on your face. We both have huge smiles on her face. We look as happy as we've ever been in that photo. Show me your other favorite. I think, I think of just my family, my immediate family. This is my favorite. So it's got you with your arm around Chris, yes. your three boys with giant smiles. Where are you in this picture? We're at a Denver Nuggets game. We did things together like that all the time. My boys always say, Dad, because we would get promo tickets from work and stuff sometimes. When are you going to get some more tickets? It's ab season. What do you miss the most being in here? I miss contact. I miss, I miss the loving contact of my family. The, the embraces of my, my wife. The scent of clean pillows. I miss, um, I miss 
that I have absolutely no communication with my three sons. And he was quite emotional. Yeah, I mean, sobbing at times. I felt like he was bawling when he was talking about his family and feeling bad about what he did. Physically, I could see him, like, pulling at his skin, like, grabbing it. Like, yeah, kneading his skin. Yeah, it was just sort of... He was having a, an, a, like a physical reaction to some of the questions I was asking and some of the things that he was recounting. The interview at the prison lasts for two and a half hours. Richard Kirk explains what happened leading up to the night he killed his wife in a lot of detail. So just to summarize some of it, Richard Kirk had been struggling with pain pills for years. He says he'd been taking Vicodin for back pain and he was eventually diagnosed with severe arthritis in his back. He became addicted, he tried to quit on and off, and then in the spring of 2014, Richard Kirk says he became kind of interested in marijuana for pain management. So one day, he's out picking up milk, driving home. I got in the truck, started driving home north on Colorado Boulevard, coming home with the milks. I see out of the corner of my eye where there's a store, a, a, a medical marijuana store that's been established that I've really never even noticed before. But this time as I drove by, it had a banner flapping in the wind and I noticed it said recreational marijuana. And I turned, I made a U-turn and I went, and I went to that um, medical slash recreational marijuana store. Richard Kirk says he doesn't have a medical marijuana card. You need a doctor's stamp of approval in order to get one of these state-issued cards, and he just doesn't want to be in the state system. So Richard Kirk goes into the recreational side of the store. I went in, started talking to the guy. He was a younger guy. He had, like, kind of spikes through his ears. I was like, this doesn't feel right, but he seemed knowledgeable, way more knowledgeable than I was. I didn't want to smoke. I didn't want to smell like smoke was on me. So I wasn't even considering anything to buy that was uh, a smoke. I I wanted to try an edible. And uh, I was leaning towards an edible, I should say. And he suggested, he said, well, this is for you. If you got kids and you don't want to just be lethargic, then this would work better for you. An edible. An orange, ginger-flavored candy with 100 milligrams of THC. That's the stuff in marijuana that makes you high. Now... There's no record of the conversation between Richard Kirk and the person at the dispensary who helped him. But Richard Kirk says he was told to eat about a quarter of the 100 milligram candy he bought. So I pulled in the driveway and right when I pulled in the driveway, that's when I opened it and I looked at it and I go, okay, a quarter. I marked it with my finger, now what I thought was a quarter and I bit it off from the piece. Tasted good, tastes like orange ginger snap but it had a little bit of a marijuana taste to it not much but as I chewed it I kind of tasted it more when it went away really melted pretty quickly and, and I swallowed it I wasn't feeling anything I wasn't feeling high I wasn't feeling like what normal effects that I thought you would get from eating marijuana or sm- from smoking marijuana from what I remember smoking it you take a puff and in about four seconds you kind of go wow I feel that I'm good. I don't want any more. You know, you, you could regulate it. You knew about it. This had nothing like that. So he waits a while and then bites off a bit more. And as I was putting it into my mouth and I was chewing it a little bit, I all of a sudden, almost instantaneously, just felt like 
this is a feeling I've never felt before. And as I started to swallow it, I went, wait a minute, something's wrong to myself. I said, that other stuff is starting to work and I don't know, it's not working the way I want it. I was completely freaked out immediately. Something that strikes me in his retelling so far is that this story isn't so unusual. There are a lot of stories about someone eating an edible, not feeling anything, so they eat more and then they freak out and just have an all-around bad experience. There's a story about the New York Times reporter. She came to Denver to do a piece on marijuana. She ate an edible and ended up in her hotel room in the fetal position for eight hours. But Richard Kirk's freak out quickly gets worse, and then his story takes a serious turn. It's not a feeling that I've ever had before. It was like I was in a different place. It was like I'm laying there, and it just all seems so surreal to me what they're doing. And Chris came down and said, come on, Richard, come out of there. You're scaring the boys. But then I'm laying on the floor. I feel cold like I'm on concrete, and I feel like people are stomping boots on me. I remember remember being out on our deck. I remember jumping through my youngest son's window, trying to go through the screen when there's a door right outside. I was standing there thinking, what am I doing out here? Why am I out here? I'm all alone out here. I remember her going, Richard, why are you out there? How come you went out this way? What are you doing? And I, and I, instead of, I, I... Do you remember why you went to go get the gun? All I remember is being in the bedroom, me fumbling with the safe, getting the gun out, getting the gun out of the safe, going back towards the living room. I remember all that. During this whole thing, Christine Kirk is on the phone with 911 pleading for help. During that 13-minute call, she says that her husband is hallucinating and that he's asking her to get the gun and to shoot him. And I tr- I've tried ever since, but I cannot remember anything that happened after I entered the living room. I can't remember. I can't remember if I, if Chris came to me or if I went to her. I don't know how it happened. I still have absolutely no recollection of what happened. What happens, in the end, is that Richard Kirk gets the gun out of the safe and shoots his wife in the head. He murders her with their three young sons at home. This is how Richard Kirk remembers and portrays the events. A family man who just completely lost control after eating an edible. Lori Jane, Christine Kirk's family didn't want to do a recorded interview, but tell me a little bit about what you've learned about other versions or other sides of Richard Kirk. So what came up a lot is that he has a short temper or a short fuse, um, that he often has to be right. Or he can't, you can, he, you can never win an argument with him or have a constructive co- argument. Some people referred to him as a bully. They, they had financial problems in their marriage. There was also reports that Chris, his wife, had confided in a coworker that maybe she was going to leave him, that maybe she wasn't in love with him anymore and that was looking forward to possibly having a divorce. Things weren't the best in their marriage before Chris was killed. It was rocky. It was rocky. Lori Jane confronted Richard Kirk about a lot of this. The short temper, the rocky marriage, and he said, yeah, a lot of that was true. But he still blamed his actions on the edible. How much do you think the marijuana edible impacted your decision to kill your wife? There's no, there is absolutely no other situation that I can think of 
where I would do that. For me, I know it's 100% that the, the marijuana and me ingesting it is the reason that I did it. I know without any doubt that if I did not eat that marijuana, my wife and family would still be together today. I know that with a certainty. This defense was never tested because there was never a trial. Richard Kirk ultimately took a plea deal, in part, so that his sons wouldn't have to testify against him during a trial. Richard Kirk pled guilty and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Christine Kirk's family sued the two companies that manufactured and sold the edible. Both companies eventually settled with the family, but publicly rejected any responsibility for Richard Kirk's actions. So is Richard Kirk a guy who killed his wife and there just happened to be marijuana present? Or did the marijuana make him do it? Or is it just something in between? Lori Jane, tell me a little bit about what you wanted to know. We wanted to know if what he said, that the edible made him do it, was actually a possibility. So we wanted to look at what research has been done since this incident happened that might help open the door and shed some light on these issues. Could an edible impact somebody's brain that intensely that they would do something this violent? Data and information on the public health impacts of marijuana is an emerging body of research. That's partially because legal marijuana just hasn't been around for very long. Colorado voted to legalize recreational marijuana in 2012 and open pot shops in January of 2014. And then there's this. At the federal level, marijuana is illegal, so there isn't much funding for research. In fact, the federal government classifies marijuana as a Schedule I drug, meaning it has no medical use and has a high potential for abuse. Other drugs like heroin, LSD, and ecstasy are all in this category. Here in Colorado, the state is working on trying to understand these public health impacts. Since 2015, the state's public health department has put $9 million towards studies related to medical marijuana and a little over $2 million towards studies related to the public health effects of recreational marijuana, including a new study examining the types of marijuana products associated with hospital visits. So we're going to go meet with Dr. Andrew Monty. He's an expert in emergency medicine and toxicology. Dr. Andrew Monty is working on that last study, marijuana products associated with hospital visits. Lori Jane and I meet him in the emergency department at UC Health near Denver. Lori, nice to meet you. Dr. Monty has done a lot of research related to marijuana-related illnesses, 10 studies over the past decade. And a couple of years ago, Richard Kirk's lawyers hired him to consult on the case regarding THC levels and the capacity of THC to cause hallucinations. Now, he's focusing on marijuana edibles with brand new data on how they factor into ER visits. First, a few big picture numbers from this study. So overall, um, we, over the last five years, we've seen about 2,600 cannabis attributable visits in this emergency department. Around 500 visits a year. So really what that boils down to is really one or two visits per day. Because people smoke too much or had a bad reaction to an edible or something like that. And that's not really many visits in the scheme of things. For example, this emergency department gets 100,000 visits per year. 
Dr. Monty says that the most common marijuana-related problem people are having when they come in. Why people come into this emergency department actually is this cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, severe vomiting associated with heavy marijuana use. The second most common reason is psychiatric, anxiety, panic attacks. We'll come back to that. But first, one of the key findings in Dr. Monty's new study is about what people smoked or ate sent them to the hospital. Now, here's what's important to know. THC. Again, that's the stuff that makes you high. In Colorado, there's a lot more THC sold in flower form, so something like a joint, than in edible form. Yet, we're seeing about 268 times more edible visits when we control for the, the product sales of THC in flowers versus edibles. Meaning that although there's a lot more THC being sold in flower form, it's edibles that are sending people to the ER in an outsized way. In 2014, the state established something called the Retail Marijuana Public Health Advisory Committee. Fifteen experts, including Dr. Andrew Monti, to review current scientific literature on the public health impacts of marijuana. The most recent report recommends more studies, especially related to edibles and more education. And it points out that much of the current public health research looks at an association, but doesn't prove that marijuana alone caused any particular health effect. The report does spell out an important acute effect that THC has on some users. Psychotic symptoms, hallucinations, paranoia, delusions. They're seeing things, they're hearing things, they're actually very, very afraid. Their heart is racing, uh, they get sweaty. And, and they're very, very nervous and paranoid. Dr. Monty's data set shows that this kind of freakout is more common in people who eat edibles than who smoke. Clearly, edibles seem to have a more severe toxicity than inhaled agents, and it seems that much of this is actually psychiatric in nature. The other thing is exacerbation of underlying um, chronic psychiatric conditions, right? So what will happen is, is somebody that, that has underlying schizophrenia starts to smoke more pot and they actually have more hallucinations. And doctors still don't know exactly why edibles trigger psychiatric problems in some people and not others. What do you know about how common violent incidents are related to marijuana edibles. Does that data exist? Not really, because there's not a consistent way that police departments track this. But there have been a few high-profile incidents involving edibles. In addition to the Richard Kirk case, there was the case of the college student who had come down to get a marijuana edible, ate way more than he should have. Says that he started acting hostile and then leapt to his death from the fourth floor of this Holiday Inn here in Denver. Then there was a case of a boy that had come into town, I think he was from Oklahoma, had come in town on a ski trip. In the hours before he took his own life, Luke Goodman's family says the 23-year-old overdosed on edible pot. So recently, and in doing some research about this, I found this other case of this young guy. Tonight, the trashed cabin and federal charges after violence breaks out in the air. Again, same story, ate too many in a short span of time, got on the plane and then became ballistic. Allegedly tried to open the exit door in first class. A flight attendant stepping in and the man allegedly punching her twice in the face. 
so there are really only a few of these headline-grabbing violent incidents that have been associated with edibles that we know about anyway. And in these handful of cases, it hasn't been proven that the edible was the one and only cause. While Dr. Andrew Monti feels that edibles do make sense for medical marijuana patients, because the high lasts for so long and takes a while to kick in, taking edibles just for fun? If people are taking this to get high, most people don't want to get high three hours from the time they take this. And so I would suggest to you that the kinetics of, of edible formulations are inconsistent with what most users are looking for when they actually want to get high. Would you make a recommendation to eliminate edibles as a recreational source here in Colorado? I think that the edible agents, when we talk about a risk-benefit profile, Edible agents for the recreational purpose um, just don't pass the smell test to me. A lot has changed in the marijuana industry since Richard Kirk killed his wife in 2014. Now, recreational marijuana sales are legal in nine states, and Colorado has put regulations in place to make edibles safer to use and easier to understand. After looking at this Richard Kirk story and all this, this unusual story and these ideas of what might happen, we wanted to know what kind of precautions have been taken when it comes to helping people understand how to take an edible in a safe way and the regulations that Colorado's put into effect. So we wanted to go to this dispensary. We went to this place called Simply Pure. We meet the general manager, a guy named Brian Nowak. He takes us into the dispensary, which basically looks like a cool coffee shop. Gray walls, distressed wood, Edison bulbs. Brian Nowak pulls out a couple of different types of edibles, squares of chocolate. Um, you know, so each, each of those little squares represents a ten, 10 milligrams of THC. Correct. It's a state recommended dose. The rules on yep. dosing and packaging uh, have been changing so over the years. Brian Nowak also takes out a box of chocolate truffles, dark brown with swirls of shiny gold so. and deep pink. These are beautiful. Yeah, those truffles are definitely beautiful. He turns one over. And they got the little THC logo stamped on the back of them, so it's very clear what those are. A diamond shape around the letters THC in all caps with an exclamation point, stamped on the plain side of the pretty candy. It was incredible to see how a tiny and edible could be and still marked with a THC symbol. And this was a way to help make sure that people know what you're consuming has got THC in it. It's not just a regular brownie. It's not just a regular chocolate. Because these edibles do look exactly like regular brownies, regular chocolates, regular whatever. This universal symbol rule, the rule that requires this THC stamp, was part of a bundle of marijuana regs that took effect in 2016. The word candy was no longer allowed on marijuana packaging, and labels could no longer include anything about health benefits. Now, there are all sorts of rules on the books. Rules about childproof packaging, rules about which pesticides can be used in growing marijuana. And now, thanks to another new regulation put in place last year, you can't make edibles that look like kids' candy. Animals, fruits, cartoons, the kind of stuff that a kid might mistake for candy. When someone comes in and like wants to buy an edible, what do you say to them to make sure they understand how to consume it correctly? Well, first I definitely start off by seeing if they have any past experiences, good or bad. Um, and then, 
you know, I guess assuming that they don't know or are unfamiliar with their dose, we always start and recommend people do a half to a quarter of actually what the state recommended dose is. The state recommended dose, which again is 10 milligrams. Why do you start off with such a protective recommendation? Because of the negative stigma, especially in regards to edibles and, you know, with, with smoking or vaping, people are going to kind of feel or gauge um, that intoxication rather quickly. Um, whereas with an edible, you can definitely over ingest 10 times what you're going to need and not feel it for an hour and then it's all going to come up and, and hit you. So because of that, I like to make sure that people are just really, really cautious because I don't want anybody to have a negative experience. Um, especially somebody that is unfamiliar with cannabis. Colorado is learning and its regulations are evolving as the state's marijuana industry grows. Since 2014, Colorado dispensaries have done more than $5 billion in marijuana sales. Last year, the state collected $250 million in taxes and fees. And according to new data from the state, 15% of adults in Colorado use marijuana, and more and more of them are drinking and eating cannabis products. Rachel Gillette has been part of the industry since the early days. She's a lawyer based in Denver. I started my own practice in 2010, primarily focusing on representing marijuana businesses. I'll never forget this, I called my constitutional law professor from the airport. And I was like, I'm going to open up my own firm and I'm going to practice marijuana law. And she said, you're going to be disbarred. <laughs> Rachel Gillette now heads up the cannabis law group for a national law firm called Greenspoon Martyr. And she's on the board of directors of Colorado Normal, which is a national pro-marijuana advocacy group. Back in the day, she says the industry was different. So what did it look like? It was less regulated. <laughs> there wasn't as strict standards in place. There weren't as strict labeling requirements. We didn't instantly develop an educational campaign to educate people on safe consumption of edibles. So it's evolved. And that's what happens when you're starting from a clean slate, essentially. I wanted to know what Colorado has learned, what mistakes we've made and we've improved on so that other states can learn from us. It's taken that many years to get to that point. Do you think other states need to take that much time to get their system in, pl in place and implemented or no. is it okay to just kind of... No, they don't. You know why? Because we've already done it in Colorado. So all they need to do is read our rule book which is over 900 pages long. And see those types of issues that they should be addressing. <laughs> Do they have to start over? No, we've already done it for them. Could they make it better? Probably. Colorado was the first mover on this issue. And we've, as a result, um, I think other states can benefit from our experiences. Rachel Gillette says that both Massachusetts and California have structured their rules like Colorado's. As for the health concerns and some of the high-profile incidents related to edibles, like the case of Richard Kirk. These are unfortunate circumstances, which is why I emphasize the importance of educating people on this product. However, drunk drivers kill people every day, too. I mean, those are tragic circumstances. 
The bottom line is cannabis is being consumed all over the United States. It's being consumed in Kansas where it's completely illegal and it's being consumed for medical reasons and for, for recreational reasons. And I think that's the way, that's a good goal is to take it out of the back alleys and bring it into the light and try to figure out how to regulate it appropriately. Lori Jane, I, I want to go back to your interview with Richard Kirk briefly here to listen to something that he had to say about Colorado's regulations back in 2014. I would say that there was a complete failure on the on the part of the the state, the 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 companies that open up and the regulations, the process in which they made at that time the marijuana. There wasn't enough enough wasn't enough oversight. My hand pulled the trigger. I'm the one that shot and killed the person that I want to be with for the rest of my life. I was able to do that in front of my three children who I always vowed to protect and to, 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 to watch over. I would say that the dangers are there. I would say that they're real. I would say that they're not made known as much as they should be right, even right now. So Lori Jane, if we consider all of the regulatory changes that have happened in Colorado since Richard Kirk killed his wife back in 2014. Would these rules have helped him back then? As in, if, if he knew what we've learned since, could there have been a different outcome? If you believe everything he's saying, that the edible made him do it, then it's possible that these new rules would have impacted him. Had he only taken an exact dose, uh, had he known specifically that an edible, which he claims he didn't, could have been absorbed into his system in a different way than smoking marijuana, all of these things might have impacted what happened that night. There are many people that say they believe him. There are many people that say they don't. Um, we're never going to know exactly all of the details. And as a reporter, I always take this view. I've said this so many times to different people. There's not just two sides to a story. In life, there's not just two sides. There's a perspective. And that's what we do as journalists is look at the different perspectives we're not here to say edibles are good. We're not here to say edibles are bad. Our main goal is to make sure people are able to make more informed decisions, to use facts, to use data, and to understand the different perspectives of different people from the industry, from the state, from the government, from the consumer, to the convicted killer. I'm Lee Patterson, and this is Insight, investigative reporting from Rocky Mountain PBS, produced here in Denver, Colorado. Thanks to Lori Jane Gleha for her reporting. Insight is edited by Elisa Barba. Our music is composed by Poddington Bear. For more on marijuana edibles, check out the TV story that originally aired on Rocky Mountain PBS. That episode is called The Marijuana Murder, and you can find it at rmpbs.org.